Okay, so let me pray. God, thank you. We, uh, we are just uh, grateful for your grace and mercy and love. We're thankful for how you provide for us, you protect us. God, we're thankful that um, everything happens on your time, even though we get nervous about that sometimes and, and anxious, and we want to be able to uh, grab the controls from you. God, uh, keep us humble to be able to know that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that we submit to you. We confess our utter and complete dependence upon you. God, we thank you for your majesty as well as your mystery, and we revel in that. Thank you for your son, thank you for your spirit, and thank you for your word and its truth. And as we study it tonight, pray that you would just uh, open our hearts and our minds to everything that you have for us. Help us to become uh, good Bible readers. Thank you for the food that we've been eating. Pray that you'll bless it to our needs. Uh, Just pray that uh, you'll be able to speak through David and I tonight. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We got another box of these uh, Mark notebooks. If you didn't get one last week or Sunday morning, we were out of them by Sunday morning, but we did get another box of these, and they are back on the connect table back there if you you would like one of those. They're really handy uh, to have. It has the text of Mark in the uh, English Standard Version, which is the translation we use, and then uh, note uh, note paper next to it, so it's really helpful. Uh, I'm going to just spend about 10 minutes uh, doing a couple of preliminary things, and then David's going to pretty much have the rest of the night uh, doing Bible facts and starting in on um, uh, how we approach, um, yeah, as opposed to Bible opinions. That would be my area, Elizabeth. Um, anyway, uh, and he'll, he'll start talking about how to approach a text uh, from the um, perspective of uh, observations, which we're going to spend most of our night really talking about that. And then in addition to observations next week and the week after, we'll talk about interpretation and application as we, the last two weeks of this uh, little um, series, we're going to be doing a lot of application stuff. We're going to actually open up to some texts and some books and, and, and go through them that way. So uh, one of the things that I like to talk about, especially with a communication background, is as you approach reading the Bible, what are some of the questions that you want to ask? David will get into this, but from my perspective, uh, there are two main questions that you would want to ask. Number one, what is the context of the text that you are reading? What's the context? Uh, What is the occasion and the purpose of the document that you're reading, whether it's a gospel or a letter or a historical narrative, what is the occasion and the purpose um, for that document being written? So why was Paul writing to the church in Ephesus when he did? When did he write it? Why did he write it? What are the, what are the issues that he's trying to deal with? Uh, what's the main purpose of him writing it? And then the next question would be, what, do, what is the content of the document. What does it say? What does it say in that context? Okay. Now, along with that, you're also going to be looking at some very important secondary items. Uh, I I hesitate to call them secondary because they're really important, uh, but they would be secondary to the context and the content. And that is, what's the history? What is the historical uh, context and the history leading up to this document being written? And what's the broader history around the document being written? So is it the Roman Empire? Is it, is it what's going on in the Mediterranean in, 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 the, uh, in the year 48 AD? And then what is the literature? What is the type of literature that is being written? If it's an epistle or a letter 
from one of the uh, apostles uh, like Paul. That is going to make a difference in how you read it and how you interpret it. And in the communication discipline, we ask these very same contexts, even t- uh, co- questions, even today, uh, as we're trying to understand and interpret the meaning of messages today, interpersonal communication as well as text. Um, we know that uh, communication generally has two major dimensions, two major dimensions, and they would be content and relationship. So what's the content of the message? What is the message saying? And what is the relationship of the people between which the, the message is going back and forth? Um, now, this is just a little side note. I think this is kind of funny. But in, in 21st century communication, the, the, um, uh, the dimensions would be content and relationship. Uh, there is a particular sex that seems to focus more on, research has shown this for decades, there's a particular sex that seems to focus more on content than relationship, and there is the other particular sex that seems to focus more on relationship than content. Would anybody want to take a huge risk and venture out and say which is which? Anybody? Nobody's willing to say it because you're worried it's a trick question. It's not a trick question. Women are more concerned about the relationship dimension. Men are more concerned about the content, okay? So, and this is absolutely true. So, this is the wonderful thing of a complementary uh, marriage. If Jackie knows that I have a very difficult and challenging meeting with somebody on a particular day, um, she literally, before I leave the house, she will grab me, she will square me up, she will look right into my eyes, and she'll say, I am praying for you, but be careful what you say. <laughs> because it's so important to her to you know, you know, keep the relationship intact. Now, the shoes on the other foot, I know she has a very difficult uh, conversation to have with somebody at her work, a challenging, confrontational conversation. And I'll do the same thing before she leaves. I'll grab her, I'll square her up, and I'll say, I'm praying for you, but be sure you say this. (laughs) Because we're kind of balancing each other out. But I, I tell that to help you understand that we take communication for granted, and there really is a science and a and a and an art and a study of communication, and that's exactly what we're doing with the Bible. We're not just coming and reading a John Grisham novel. We're reading something that you have to understand that there are these different dimensions, context, content, history, literature, and how it all comes together to actually make something much bigger, much more beautiful, much grander than most of the stuff that we read. And if you begin to understand it that way, and it's not that hard to do. It just takes a little extra work and study. It's not that hard to do. Uh, You'll just find it a much more enriching experience to read the Bible. Then the other thing I want to mention is, um, you know, we we also take this for granted in in a lot of circles. You really need a good translation. Um, I came out of a church that used the NIV, the New International Version. It's a very good, very competent uh, translation. Um, I came into a church where we use the ESV. The ESV, the English Standard Version, is the official Bible of Redemption Church. So you know when you walk into any Redemption Church, if you have an ESV Bible, you're going to be able to follow along. Have you ever noticed when you go into a church and they say, we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and you open your Bible, and they're reading stuff that is it's kind of the same, but 
the words are different and the clauses are in different places and all that. That's what happens when you have a different translation. So get yourself a good translation. We use the ESV. That doesn't mean that the other translations are necessarily bad or a problem, but we use the ESV. We, we really like it. It's very literal, and it's, um, it's, uh, it's not soft in terms of its reading level, but it's still readable. In other words, it's not at a fourth grade level. It's probably at about a uh, high school freshman level, which is about as high as you really want to go, generally speaking, in, in this sort of thing. So we really like it. We, we actually know somebody, well, you know somebody who's on the translation committee of the ESV, Wayne Grudem, who's the systematic theologian at um, Phoenix Seminary. Uh, we also like the message. We like the message, but you need to understand that the message really isn't a translation. It's a paraphrase. So how many of you read the message by Eugene Peterson? It can be really, really helpful. Um, it's, uh, we read it all the time in conjunction with the ESV. When we study a passage, we use the ESV, but we'll look at other translations to see how they translate it. So um, uh, we do like the message, but not necessarily to, to, uh, to, to teach out of and to use alone. I'll read the message just for quiet devotional reading at times. Um, but more and more, I'm using the ESV even for that. I've really fallen in love with the ESV. Um, I, I don't want to sound too pejorative, but just frankly, the King James Version is not that helpful. It's not based on the, on the oldest and most accurate texts. And there's some liberties um, most people believe that people take with, uh, that, that the translators have taken with some of the texts as well in order to preserve tradition rather than um, doctrinal accuracy. And so um, we're just a little, we're not, you know, it's also the language is a bit archaic, um, a little bit more difficult for people to understand. I would definitely get a study Bible. We talked about that last week. Study Bible is very helpful. And the study Bible is always going to include two things, helps like a concordance and introductions to each book and, and word studies and all of that stuff that can be very helpful. And then, like I said last week, the maps, which... Um, I'm surprised we haven't canonized the maps as an actual book in the Bible. I think we really should. That would be helpful. But uh, So that's all I got on translation. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you tonight's um, main speaker. Sit down. Our keynote speaker. It is Mr. David Massey. Please welcome <laughs> David Massey. Thanks, Frank. Um, so he did that as a joke because tonight we have a lot of content to cover, and some of it's sort of routine. So it's stuff that you're familiar with, stuff that you maybe, if you grew up in church or in Sunday school, you've seen this before. But um, it's important, nevertheless, to cover this on the front end, and then we'll work our way into uh, this step of observation that we'll do later. The next three weeks will look essentially like this. Um, Tonight, after we cover facts about the Bible, we will cover observations. So just making observations of the biblical text. Um, spending time just looking at, reading the text over and over and over. I got to get my Bible out. It'll be good. Um, the next night, so next Wednesday, we will do interpreting the text. And then the third, the, the final Wednesday night, we'll do applying the text to our lives, which will then lead into the next class that will be offered by Cody and Josh on how to live the Bible for all it's worth. We're talking about how to read the Bible for all it's worth, but Cody. Uh, Kimmel and Josh Prather are going to teach a class called How to Live the Bible for All It's Worth because the goal for reading the Bible is that we're changed by it, not just that we consume it um, like we consume food just for our own nutrition, but so that we are changed by it and we live the, the content of 
the, the book out. And so um, before we get started, related to that, I want to say this. What we're about to do will seem a little bit academic, and there's a danger in that. And I want to say that if we fall into that danger, we will turn the Bible into an academic textbook, and that's not my goal for us. I want for us to remember that this is God's word that speaks to our hearts. And the way that we'll analyze it will seem sort of scientific. Um, It'll have kind of a, a method to it. But if we only read the Bible through that framework and we turn it into an academic textbook, then we've lost the ability to hear it speak to our hearts. And that's not what we want. This is God's word to us. And so we ought not just um, treat it as an academic work. So with that said, let's cover a few basics. So facts about the Bible. What is the Bible? Um, The English word Bible is derived from the Greek word biblion, which means roll or book. If you're wondering why do I have these, so I compiled these PowerPoints from my, I teach a class called Christian Worldview and another class called Biblical Interpretation, and I felt like these were helpful, and it's better for you guys to see things than just hear things the whole time. So um, if you want to take notes, you can, but you don't have to. If you'd like this PowerPoint, I'd be glad to email it to you. So um, a biblion was a roll of papyrus, which was a reed-like plant, and this was what the ancient writers would write their manuscripts on in the ancient world. And so a manuscript, and for those of you that took the Uh, church membership class, we talked a little bit about manuscripts. Um, A manuscript was the original document on which the writing was done. And over time, that manuscript was copied to other manuscripts, which was then copied to other manuscripts, and on and on and on. And a lot of times, this freaks people out, and they go, wait, how do we trust the Bible then? This is like a game of telephone. And I hear this all the time in conversation with people who want to discredit the Bible's validity. They say, well, you don't have this. And I acknowledge, yeah, we don't have original manuscripts. We call these autographs. Um, And not in the sense of like a famous person signing something, but auto, self, and graphe, writing. So the self-writing, the original copy. We don't have the autographs. We have copies of copies of copies. And what people will do is they'll say, I don't know how you trust your Bible. That's like a game of telephone where I go to Erica and I say, you know, I whisper something in her ear and I say, "Um, uh, Frank smells really bad. And and then she tells that to Harrison and that goes to Melinda and Justin and and it goes around the room and it comes back to Frank with, um, Frank is a really great guy who knows a lot of things about fashion, right? (laughs) Um, Which is, True. Uh, That's not the original message that I conveyed to Erica, right? And so somebody will say, see, that game of telephone that you have was passed down from so many different people that you don't have a trustworthy manuscript. And the reality is, is that's just not true at all. Historically, the way that manuscripts were copied was under the very meticulous care and oversight of other scribes who painstakingly watched with every detail every mark of the pen. Now, I will also admit that in that process, uh, there were some, some grammatical and spelling errors that showed up. And so people will say, look, there's grammatical errors and spelling errors. You can't trust the Bible. No, those grammatical errors and spelling errors, they don't uh, trump the truthfulness of the Bible's message, right? Like just because somebody writes you a text message and, and says your instead of your with the apostrophe R-E, which drives me nuts, um, that, that, yeah, you're, you're a grammar guy? Yeah, 
just because they, they, they made that mistake doesn't mean that what they said was untrue, right? The other problem with the idea of this being analogous to um, the, the process of telephone is that the whole idea of telephone is predicated upon keeping it a secret. It's built on that. This process isn't built on that. This process is built on out, outside accountability, that people will see that. And so um, that's kind of my nutshell answer to people that say you can't trust the Bible because it was passed down on and on and on. And then they'll say, in, in addition to it being like a telephone, it was from one translation to the next. So it went from Hebrew to uh, Aramaic to Greek to Latin to German to English. And how, how can you trust it? Because all of that translation that took place. And historically, that's just not the case. Like that's just academically foolish and um, historically naive to say that. When we do translation, so Frank mentioned the ESV. This is an ESV also. Um, Wayne Grudem across the street at Phoenix Seminary. He's on the, the oversight committee for the translation process of this. Uh, they, they don't look at the, the German, there are German translations of scripture. He doesn't look at the German translations and then the Latin and then the Greek and the, he doesn't do that. They just go right to the original language in which it was written. And so um, it's just not true that like this happened over long periods of time that, oh, you can't trust the Bible because it uh, was translated over and over and over. All right, so let's keep moving. Um, more basic stuff. This is comprised of 66 books. It's divided into two major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, what is the Testament? It's a word that also means covenant, which is a compact or an agreement between two parties. Oftentimes you'll see these abbreviations, OT and NT, to refer to them. All right, let's talk about the Bible as a story. The Bible as a story. This is an important thing for us to keep in mind as we study the scriptures because um, what we're going to do tonight when we make observations is we're really going to zoom into the biblical text, which is good. We need to slow down and zoom in, but we also have to remember that there's a zoomed out element to this study of scripture as well. So um, the Bible has many smaller narratives, all of which compose a larger narrative, and this larger narrative can be called a meta-narrative, okay? When I grew up in church, I had no idea what a meta-narrative was, which is probably good because like a 10-year-old kid can't really understand, like, what does that mean? But what I did have an understanding of were these smaller stories in the Bible. Um, the story of creation, the story of Noah's Ark, the story of David and Goliath, right? And these little stories were used, in my experience, to make me a, a better little boy, like a more moral little guy, which was a really daunting task for my Bible teachers because I was a bad kid. Um, so my suggestion here is that the Bible is not made up of a bunch of itty-bitty stories about how to make you more moral, but it's one big story, all of which these little ones are sewn together to point to a main point, and that is that God is acting in human history to, restore, to redeem and restore people unto himself. And this meta-narrative is sweeping. So meta is from the Greek word that means after, beyond. So it's like the really, zoom, like think zoomed out. This is the big picture story of the Bible. A meta-narrative, a formal definition of it, is a comprehensive explanation of the, his, of the world, of history, and of the future. So what does that cover? Pretty much everything, right? Yeah, a meta-narrative is kind of beyond or after. It tells the big picture story. It's a master idea that claims to be true for all people everywhere. This is where the notion of 
a meta narrative starts to rub up against people and they say, wait, wait, wait. If you want to believe your Bible, that's fine, but don't claim that it's true for everybody else at all time. And this is why Christians um, have to have some, some abilities to say, no, I do believe that it's true for all people at all times. Uh, and here's why. So questions so far about meta narrative, big picture stuff. By the way, as we work our way through, um, we're going to cover a lot. Just raise your hand and say, I, I, don't, I don't understand or give me an example or what do you mean by that? Clarify. There's, there's no, yeah, Dell. Yeah. Yeah, so Dell, I'm going to repeat your questions because we are recording this and some people will listen to it later. So Dell asked about the, the choice of words between story maybe versus account because story seems to imply to some people that it's like a fairy tale. It's sort of made up, like a story that you read to your kids at night about uh, a, a fairy, right? Or some magical giants in a land. How do, you, how do you distinguish that word story and, and drive home the fact that we believe the Bible is not just a story that's made up, but it, these are real accounts of historical occurrences? Um, Del, I do prefer the word account over story, um, specifically in regards to some of the accounts in the Gospels, so Jesus' life and the, the events that occurred there, or the travels of Paul in the book of Acts. But when I'm talking about the meta narrative of Scripture, I'll use the word narrative. Um, instead of story, maybe, just because that it guards from uh, people thinking it's a fairy tale. But sometimes people don't know what narrative means, and so then I have to drive it home with, well, it, it, it's a story essentially. So, um, but you can clarify along the way. Even though I say story, I mean that this happened in, at some point in, in history. So, yeah, great question. Thanks. There are true yeah, they're true stories, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, the meta narrative of the Bible begins with the creation of all things and essentially ends with the renewal of all things. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates everything good, and when sin enters the world, everything is broken, but he sends Jesus. Of course, I'm skipping a lot here, but the essential, <laughs> the essential framework is, and we're going to look at more of, a, more of it broken down here in just a second, but uh, Jesus comes to redeem and restore and to renew all things, and that's the end of the Bible we see in Revelation 21 and 22. So look at these six major themes and tell me if you think this is helpful. This is what um, I teach in class. The first major theme is creation. God makes. God makes. This is Genesis 1 and 2. The next major theme is fall. And really a better way to, to phrase this is rebellion. Um, because fall sort of implies this passive like, oh, I fell into it. It was sort of not my intention. It was, oh, I tripped and it was that thing's fault. No, this was an active rebellion on the part of Adam and Eve who directly disobeyed God's command to not eat of the, the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. So creation, fall, or rebellion, God judges. Covenant is the next major theme. Um, Justin, I'm going I'm to just point you out here. Uh, so this guy's dad like wrote the book on the, the framework for covenants. His dad's a, a systematic theology professor at Southern Seminary in Kentucky and a very, very helpful book on uh, God establishing his kingdom, his reign and rule through covenants. And the goal of covenants was to pursue, his dad is Stephen Wellham. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm going to change how I'm dressing. 
Sorry, I, I shouldn't have done that, but um, covenant is God pursuing people even after the fall, even after they rebelled against him. God still says, I love people and I'm going to pursue them in relationship. And this is kind of the, how the relationship's going to look is through these covenants and they establish stipulations on expectations and um, how God relates to people. So this is where we see this relational theme uh, really start to emerge. The next major theme in scripture is prophecy. It's prophecy. God speaks. Now, this isn't like, this doesn't occur only after covenants. God speaks all throughout the Old Testament, but there's a major section in scripture that has uh, prophetic announcements of God speaking to his people Israel with a number of different messages, right? Some of those are messages of judgment. I'm going to judge the nation of Israel. I'm going to send them off into captivity. Uh, some of it is prophecy or, or speaking of uh, a Messiah who will come and will take on the penalty for sin. And some of the prophecy is related to restoration, which occurs after judgment. God talks about, I will make all things new. The fifth, and this is no uh, stranger category to us, the fifth theme is gospel, or we could call it redemption. This is God's redeeming uh, work through the gospel. God dies and lives again in the person of Jesus. Obviously, one of the most central themes in scripture and the theme to which we owe uh, the, the heart of our faith. And then the last theme is restoration, God's uh, renewal of all things and his reigning over all things. Okay? So these are helpful ways for me to see the flow of the story. And I, I try to, as I read through books of the Bible, um, sort of see where they fit into some of those, those categories or themes. Not that one book is always specific just to that one, but there is some overlap. Questions about this? Is this helpful? If you have some knowledge of the scriptures, do you see this arc that occurs? This is the, this is the zoomed out, summarized view of, of the Bible, the, the meta-narrative of scripture. Okay. So now let's talk about specifics. What's the Old Testament? It's the first section of the Bible based on the religious writings of ancient Israel. It contains 39 books total, and it's categorized into four literary sections. Now, these literary sections are different than the themes that we just looked at a second ago. These are specific to the books that are written themselves. Those themes I gave were bigger picture theological um, categories. These are specific genres. So we have law, we have history, we have poetry and prophecy. So law, uh, we think of, Parts of, parts of Genesis, but really Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the book of the law. It was the, the uh, rules and stipulations given to Israel for life and for conduct. History, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, they are historical tellings of what happened in the life of Israel over long periods of time. Poetry, the Psalms, right? We, th- we think especially of the way that the Psalms are written in sort of a poetic structure. Psalm 119 is a great example of this where he starts with the first letter, letter of the Hebrew alphabet and then works his way through and um, goes all the way to the last letter and I'm blanking on it. Don't tell my Hebrew professor um, who was mentored by your dad. <laughs> uh, what do Christians believe about the Old Testament? It's God's word and it begins to tell this story, this story which points to the center of our faith, Jesus. And that that rest of that story is fulfilled in the New Testament. Yeah, Frank. Go back two slides, please. Yes. You, did you say something about prophecy? Or did you 
Oh, did I not? I'm sorry. Yeah, I skipped right over it. Yeah, prophecy, uh, the, the fourth and final section of the Old Testament as far as literature goes, these are the specific books of the prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Then I have a question. I, um, Can you ask the question on the microphone since you have it? the batteries. There we go. We just okay. charge the batteries. Uh, sorry. I'll say, so um, since I went to um, a different seminary, Fuller Seminary, the and you went to Phoenix, yeah. uh, we have five categories, and the fifth would be wisdom literature. Where would that fit sure. in? Sure. Um, that could go under poetry because it's poetic in nature, but um, yeah, that's not to say that these are the strict, like, only four categories. Give an example of a wisdom literature book. The book of Proverbs is a wisdom literature book. It's also somewhat poetic in the way it's built. Uh, Ecclesiastes would be another example. Yeah, yeah thanks, Frank. That's good. Um, so what is the New Testament? Moving forward. It's the second major section of the Bible. It tells the story of Jesus and the spread of Christianity in the first century AD. It contains 27 books total, and there are kind of four literary sections. The Gospels, Acts, the Epistles, which are the letters of the Apostles written to the early churches, and then the book of Revelation, which is kind of its own separate category. Questions so far? Okay. Uh, the structure of the Bible. So the Old Testament written in Hebrew has individual books, chapters, and verses. No surprises there. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that's how it's structured. New Testament, same way. You have individual books, chapters, and verses, and it was written in Greek. The Old Testament is mostly Hebrew, but there's some of, uh, some of Daniel that are written in Aramaic, but predominantly it's written in Hebrew. Questions about this? In light of this with translation? Yeah, Elizabeth? Do you know when the, um, they decided to put in chapter breaks and put in verses? Do, do I know when they put in chapter breaks and verse numbers? I was, supposed to, I was supposed to find that out, and I didn't. Sorry, Frank. <laughs> Frank had asked me to do that, and I just totally, for, I just totally spaced I, I'm, it. I'm spitballing here, but I believe the chapter breaks came in the 14th century... 13th or 14th century, and verse breaks came uh, a century after that. And um, there are people everywhere that are dying to talk to the guy that did the verse breaks because there are some odd verse breaks, Yeah, obviously. So just remember, those are not inspired. Chapter breaks, verse breaks, nor are the headings of the translators in, in Bibles. Those are right. not inspired. I saw another hand. I thought, yes, Julie. Go back one more slide. Yeah. She's taking notes with such diligence. I appreciate that. But she did ask a question. Please, could you go back one slide? I did. I know. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yes, in the back. Sure. Yeah, so the Gospels are the, the narrations of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all tell the story of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. John is quite a bit different. Um, not in contradictory nature, but just John has a little bit more detail. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we would call the synoptic gospels, they tell sort of the same story with a little bit of different perspectives. Um, Acts is the early Acts of the Apostles. After Jesus died, rose again, and then ascended, the apostles were sent out to do the work of ministry uh, for Jesus' glory and for the growth of the church. And Acts records that process of the church growing in its early stages. Um, and the, that's the zoomed in version of the apostles' work. The zoomed, that's the zoomed out version, excuse me. 
The zoomed in version is the epistles. You have these letters written to specific churches in specific locations throughout the, the first century Mediterranean world where um, there's a church in a town called Galatia and they start adopting, this is just an example, they start adopting um, this idea that in order to be a Christian, you have to follow the Old Testament circumcision laws and be circumcised. And so Paul writes to that church and he says, no, that's, that's not the case at all. Um, so some of the epistles, they address specific issues and they shape a lot of our understanding of what Christ's death and resurrection accomplished for us. So and if I start getting ahead of you, just tell me. No, no, go, go right ahead. I, I know some of you will say, okay, this is just helpful if I'm on Jeopardy, but for others it will really help you. And, um, it, and the reason I bring this up is because it, it, it's stuff that helps me. It's information that helps me. Um, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He only wrote two books of those 27, but that, that constitutes about 30% of the New Testament. Paul wrote about 35% of the New Testament, and um, John write, wrote about 30% of yeah. the New Testament. So really, the New Testament was written, humanly speaking, by essentially three guys. Then you've got a little bit of James and Peter and Jude mixed in there, right. and some dude named Hebrews that we don't know about anything about. But that's interesting that, yeah. like, I don't know, 85, 90% of the New Testament was written just by th- those three guys. Uh, Hebrews is my favorite book in, in all of scripture. It's just rich with theology. Um, but yeah, that's a great question. And then the last category there, Revelation, is um, God's final revelation of himself and the future of what he will accomplish at the end of days. And so um, that's easily the most confusing book in the Bible and the, the book about which I know the, the, the least. And so don't ask me any questions about Revelation, okay? Um, structure of the Bible, let's, we'll keep moving. So let's talk about the, the canon of Scripture. When, yes, Callie. I just have a question about Revelation. <laughs> well played. Yeah, uh, so Callie asked, why, why was the Old Testament written in Hebrew and why was the New Testament written in Greek? Um, the Old Testament was written in a time when the people of the, um, the people of Israel, which before they were in Israel, they, they were a people group in the ancient Near East, which is just a region. Uh, we would maybe call it the Middle East today. And they had, a, they had a specific language for that people group, and it happened to be a form of, of Hebrew, what we would call a Semitic language. And I remember when I started learning it in seminary, it goes backwards, goes from right to left. Um, so this is the word Yahweh, which means Lord or Adonai, um, the word for God. And this language was the common language of that group, and that was just the language through which they wrote down the revelation that God gave them. Um, Greek was, was a little more strategic um, on the part of the, the New Testament writers, not because they were like trying to be hip or cool or relevant, but Greek was the common language at the time in the first century world. So now we're, of course, fast forwarding a bunch of years. Um, Alexander the Great had many, many years before the New Testament was written, conquered swaths of the first century world. So Israel and Egypt and uh, parts of Libya and all the way up and through like Turkey. So Greek became the trade language and the common language for everybody. And so the New Testament was written to reach that demographic. 
and it was just the common language of the time. So, yeah, good question, Callie. Horatio, close, sorry, H. When was it written down? Is what you're asking. All right, we're gonna, that's, that's where we're going. It's a good question, yeah. When was it written down, right? Because some of this was orally transmitted over time, but when was it written down? Um, I, I can't nail down exact dates on every single book, but hopefully what we'll cover here will give us sort of a framework to answer that question. So the canon of scripture, um, I used to be so confused by this concept because the only understanding of the word cannon I had was in regards to a large weapon that fired a giant projectile, but this isn't what that is talking about. The cannon um, was the group of books that acknowledged, that was acknowledged by the early church community as the rule of faith and practice. It's essentially all the books that belong in the Bible. So let's look at the Old Testament canon. Where did, where did the idea of canon begin? With the people of Israel. The people of Israel, the ones who use this crazy language. I'd love to say that, that uh, Hebrew was a result of the fall um, and that originally they used English, but that would not be true. Um, it was just, I remember taking Hebrew and feeling like I was in a fog, so confused because of how different it was. But once you get the grasp of it, it is kind of simple. Israel, through the language of Hebrew, wrote down the original words of God in the Ten Commandments. And so uh, we see an example in Exodus thirty-one eighteen. And he gave to Moses when he had made an end of speaking with him upon Mount Sinai the two tables or tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So what year this occurred, not sure. Um, but this was the start of that process. And this, this, um, this occurrence in Exodus would have happened sometime in the wanderings of the desert after they had left Egypt. Um, this collection of, of authoritative words from God, it eventually grew in size throughout the time of Israel's history. And then later, others in, in Israel's history would add to it, um, those who fulfilled the office of prophet. So Samuel, he told the people the rights and duties of kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Here's some more examples. The Acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the Seer and the Chronicles of Nathan the Prophet and the Chronicles of Gad the Seer. Um, now we have in Second Chronicles 20. Now the rest of the Acts of Jehoshaphat from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Jehu the son of Han- Hanani. I didn't, I didn't think about pronouncing this before I went through it. Which are recorded in the Book of Kings of Israel. So throughout the Old Testament you see language like this. These things were written down. They were recorded. It's not as though they just drifted forever among the people of Israel without any written account of it. Uh, here again in Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. So when did this process end? Now this, I can give a better um, nailed down answer as far as a year goes. It depends on sort of how we date Haggai, but if we date it to about 520 B.C., and Zechariah around there, um, then with Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament, it's probably around 435 BC. This was the approximate date of the the final prophets of um, the Old Testament. 
after approximately 435 BC, there were no further additions to the Old Testament canon. The, yes, I don't know your name. David. David. Yeah, essentially. Um, it, it would have been the, the, the religious authorities of Israel at the time. Um, they were, at that point, they were, a lot of them were in exile or they had just returned from exile. And the exile is a time of intense awfulness where they were banished to another country because they didn't obey Yahweh. Um, and in that period, there were no new revelations from God. Yeah. Um, yeah, more or less. We'll, we'll kind of, we'll touch on that here in just a sec. Uh, the subsequent history of the Jewish people was recorded in other writings, such as the book of Maccabees. Anybody heard of Maccabees? Yeah, so a lot of us, right? These writings were not thought by the Jews to be worthy for inclusion in the collection of God's words, uh, like from earlier years. This was not authoritative writing on behalf of God. These were just historical recordings of the ancient Jews in this sort of in between time, in between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. David, you, you may have said this already, and I may have missed it, but um, that might be a good place right there uh, to talk about what the word canon actually means. Uh, how do you, canon? The, the like word canon means canon, rule, or, rule or measure, that it lives up to us, that in order to make it into the canon, it has to make up to oh, a sure. certain standard of authority and accuracy. Yeah. So the... Um, Am I pushing buttons? Oops. Yeah, so the word canon or, or canon, um, like Frank said, is the, it had to measure up to this standard of being authoritative from God. That was, a good, that was a good insertion there. Some of you have a little bit of blank stares, and that's okay. Um, you kind of tracking with us so far? Okay, cool. So here's an example from First Maccabees. So they tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. So there was this understanding that um, God's word was being set aside and that this new book was probably not part of it. Josephus, a, an ancient Jewish historian, says this, from Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So Josephus was a, he was a pretty important authority. Uh, David, this starts to kind of touch on your question of what, what measured that. Um, the religious authorities of the time had an understanding of like what constituted God's divine revelation and what didn't. So there had been, in Josephus's viewpoint, no more words of God added to scripture after about 435 BC. Um, also, in the New Testament, this is interesting, there's no record of any dispute between Jesus and the Jews over the extent of what should constitute the Old Testament. It was just kind of assumed, that it was just under, understood. Um, so then what do we do with the Apocrypha? That's the question I find myself asking. Any of you have a Catholic background? A few of you? Yeah. Um, do you have a Catholic Bible? I should have brought mine. I have an Apocrypha. Um, so what do we do with the Apocrypha? It's additional books in the Bible that Protestants don't, we don't have them 
in our Bibles. So what do we do with that? Um, Why was it excluded by Protestant churches? These books were never accepted by the Jews as scripture, but throughout the early history of the church, there was divided opinion over whether these should be part of scripture or not. Now, how did we determine that? There was divided opinion. What were, the, what were the ways that that was measured? So here are four reasons why I think the Apocrypha should not be regarded as part of Scripture. First one, uh, they, they don't claim for themselves the same kind of authority as the Old Testament writings. So the Old Testament writings are filled with this kind of language. Thus saith the Lord, right? Um, and then the Lord spoke to the prophet Isaiah. Write these words, say these words, proclaim these things. You just don't find that kind of language in the Apocrypha. So just within themselves, they, they don't have that kind of authority. Um, two, they weren't regarded as God's words by the Jewish people from whom they originated. The, the Jewish people themselves didn't think that the apocryphal writings were God's revelation of himself. They were merely uh, historical writings or they were pieces of wisdom that had reflected on previous uh, sections of the Old Testament scripture. So it would be like this. Um, when Frank gets up and preaches, uh, we, we listen to it and we, we want to apply it. If we were to take Frank's sermons and write them out and, or take, take his notes and then say, um, we should accept these as scripture, all of us would push back on that and say, no, we don't, we don't do that. Frank is reflecting on the scriptures and, and giving us pieces of maybe wisdom from the scriptures, but they aren't themselves the scriptures. Does that make sense? In the same way, the Apocrypha functioned as sort of reflections on and uh, encouragements from the scriptures, but weren't themselves scripture. Three, uh, they weren't considered to be scripture by Jesus or the New Testament authors. This is huge. You don't have Jesus quoting from any apocryphal books. And then fourth, uh, they contain teachings in, con- let, me, let me go back to this third one. Some of you might be thinking, well, there's that one place in the book of Jude where he quotes from, what does he quote from? Enoch. Um, and you'd say, well, what do you do with that? Uh, he quotes from Enoch as an illustration, much like Frank quotes from the Godfather to make illustrations, or Seinfeld, right? They, uh, it's, just, it's just for an illustrative purpose. It's not to teach doctrine. Which those should be in the canon. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so that's the thing with Enoch and, and Jude. And then lastly, uh, some of these documents contain teachings or doctrines that are inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. So what's an example? Uh, purgatory. That's totally inconsistent with what the rest of the Bible teaches about death and judgment, that judgment occurs immediately after death. And so there is no kind of in-between state. That's one example. Thoughts on this? Um, I, I don't know when the Apocrypha would have been compiled as far as this start time and this end time, uh, but sometime after 435 B.C., um, up, leading up to, um, you know, the, the arrival of Jesus in 2 or 3 AD. Bill? You had mentioned that maybe God played a role in make, making sure oh, that his word was authentic. Absolutely, yeah. God played a role in um, the, the canonization process. Um, I just don't want to, I don't want to put um, too much emphasis on, on, on that and, and ignore the fact that like, he used people to do it. Does that make sense? Um, at the end of the day, my faith is in the God who's described in that Bible, and that comes from the words themselves and not always the formation. So 
So yes, I just, I want to really focus on the text and not the formation of the text. Does that make sense? All right, so um, other questions, thoughts so far? Let's keep moving then. Unless, oh, okay. Uh, We must conclude that these are merely human words, not God-breathed words like the words of Scripture. They have value for historical and linguistic research, and they contain a number of helpful stories about the courage and faith of many Jews during the period after the Old Testament ends, but they've never been a part of the Old Testament canon, and they shouldn't be thought of as part of the Bibles, uh, our Bibles, and therefore they don't have any binding on us today. So we would not, we would not submit to those writings like we do to the scriptures. So let's talk about the New Testament canon, how this was formed. The New Testament canon consists of the writings of the apostles, and it's primarily them who are given the ability uh, and authority from the Holy Spirit to recall accurately the words and deeds of Jesus and to interpret them rightly for uh, subsequent generations. So you see this in John 14. Jesus says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Bill, this is on your point. This is God working, right? It's not as though it's just people. Yeah. Uh, Those who have the office of apostle in the early church, they're seen to claim an authority equal to that of the Old Testament prophets, an authority to speak and write the words that are God's very words. So Peter, he encourages his readers to remember the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, 2 Peter 3.2. Also, in the book of Acts, we see this, that to lie to the apostles is equivalent to lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to God himself. This story in Acts is of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you guys know that story? They, uh, there's this couple, and the church is growing, and people from the church are selling their belongings, and they're bringing it to the church and saying, hey, these are all of the proceeds. We want this to go to the, the growth of the church. And Ananias and Sapphira do that with some land. They sell some land, and then they bring the proceeds. Uh, first, it's uh, Ananias, and he shows up and, and implies that these are all the proceeds from the sale of the land, and the, the apostles, through uh, supernatural abilities, know that he's lying, and they say, no. And he falls down, Ananias falls down dead, which is always kind of funny for people that say like, oh, the, uh, and somebody, I just thought of this, somebody had asked this on a piece of paper, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different than the God of the New Testament? Um, and we're not going to get to that tonight, but I will say this, in light of this story, th- you have the, the God of the New Testament operating very similarly to the God of the Old Testament here in Acts, like just killing people for sin at church, <laughs> you know? Um, and then when his wife shows up, I'm, I'm jumping around the story, I'm sorry. When his wife shows up, uh, she implies the same thing and they said, hey, the, the guys who buried your husband are at the door and she falls dead. And b- what they had said to them in the meantime was, um, why have you lied to God? Why have you lied to God? And so, um, not that the apostles were God, but um, they had this authority. What time is it? Is it? We got to finish at eight? Yeah. All right, you want me to keep going? All right, we're going to keep going. Uh, we have a lot to cover. Paul claims here, oh, what happened to my PowerPoint? Uh-oh. Paul claims that his directives to the church at Corinth are not merely his own words, but directives, oh man. Let's look at the text. Oh, it disappeared. What happened? Oh, well. Some of the New Testament writings were placed with the Old Testament scriptures as part of the canon of scripture. So Peter says, 
Um, in 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, he's talking about people who twist the scriptures as they do the other scriptures. So this is the New Testament referring to the Old Testament as God's writings. The word translated scriptures we talked about is graphe, uh, occurs 51 times in the New Testament and it refers to the Old Testament in every one of those occurrences. Thus, the word scripture was a technical term for the New Testament authors and it was used only of those writings that were thought to be God's words and therefore part of the canon of scripture. I know we're hauling here, but we have to, I'm sorry. First um, Timothy, Paul says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain and the scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages. So what Paul does here is he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, you shall not muzzle an ox, but then this phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, that's Jesus's words. So right here, he's, he's acknowledging that uh, Jesus's words are scripture. And so we start to see the formation of the New Testament, of, peop- of the early church saying, this is what we believe is God's revelation to us, written down. For a book to belong in the canon, it's absolutely necessary that it have divine authorship. If the words of the book are God's words through human authors, and if the early church, under the direction of the apostles, preserved the books as parts of scripture, then the book belongs in the canon. But if the uh, words of the book are not God's words, it doesn't belong in the canon. So the complete canon is this. The New Testament writings, they contain the final authoritative and sufficient interpretation of Christ's work of redemption. So it's not like we're going to find another book um, that explains more about how um, Jesus' death on the cross actually has this uh, component to it as well. And we didn't know about that component until now. This is the, I'm saying that this is the end. Like we have the final, we're, there's nothing more to it. Um, and if there, if there were a discovery, we don't think that we would include it because of a number of reasons. And I, we can't go there because it all rabbit trail all night. So, um, once the writings of the New Testament apostles and their authorized companions were completed, we have in written form the final record of everything that God wants us to know about life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And it's meaning for, this is what I was saying, for the lives of believers for all time. No more writings are added. The canon is now closed. Um, Revelation 22, this is the very, very end of the, the, the Bible. Um, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, that passage right there refers most immediately and most specifically to the book of Revelation. Um, and so if you, were to, if you were to appeal to this text to a Mormon and say, hey, you added books to the Bible, uh, what do you, you are in direct disobedience to Revelation 22, your Mormon friend would say, well, um, that, is a, that text applies only to Revelation. And uh, I, I would say that there's some truth to that, but I don't know that that's the only way to understand Revelation. It's not ironic that Revelation falls at the end of our canon. Yes, the primary reference of these verses is clearly to the book of Revelation itself, but it's not accidental that this comes at the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. And I think more broadly, there is some uh, connection to and application for the way we understand the rest of the canon, okay? So how do we know that we have the right books in the canon? Our confidence ultimately is based on the faithfulness of God. I don't want to paint this as like, Um, I've proven to you everything historically and you can trust that and me and history. No, ultimately, uh, our confidence is rooted in the faith that we have in the goodness and faithfulness of God. 
Um, the preservation and correct assembling of the canon should ultimately be seen by believers not as part of church history subsequent to God's great central acts, but as an integral part of the history of redemption itself. We gotta keep going, sorry. Um, whoop. Sorry, just kidding. That's, no, that's for class. That was for class, sorry. We gotta keep going, all right. So methods of how not to study the Bible. We're, now we're moving into our, our process of like, so we covered facts about the Bible, now we're shifting gears. How not to study the Bible. This is the, the first way to not study the Bible, the hit and miss approach. This is where you open the Bible one day and you go, wow, that was great. God really spoke to me and that was deep and rich. And, um, and then the next day you just go, well, I'm just gonna read something else sort of random and not, not dive into the, the previous book where I found myself last time and I just wasn't really feeling it today. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not the way to, to study the scriptures. Not to say you're always gonna feel impacted in the same way, but to merely, um, to merely brush through the Bible in sort of a random way creates a hit or miss result for you as the reader. So not a good way to read. Um, eisegesis, we talked about eisegesis. This is where you, you read into the text your agenda or you look for a, a, a Bible passage that will support your agenda. We don't do that. We saw an example of how not to do that last week. The Holy Spirit-led approach. This is this. You close your eyes, you open, and you go, <laughs> right? Imagine if Frank preached that way. Yikes. Uh, some churches operate like that. Really, they do. They just, they'll say, this is Holy Spirit-led. I'm gonna just, okay, let's do it. That's bad news. Don't do that. That's like fast-forwarding to the middle of a movie. Like, you wouldn't do that, right? Because you wouldn't know what's going on most of the time. I think that works maybe in Proverbs because there isn't as much historical contextual info. They're just little pieces of wisdom, but you wouldn't do that in like Mark because you want to know what's going on around it. Um, And then the fourth way to not study the Bible is the commentary approach. This is where you read the Bible, you feel confused by the Bible, and so you just go, well, I'll just read people that are smarter than me and help uh, help myself make sense of it through their study and not my own study. That's not good. I'm not saying commentaries aren't an option. I think they're great. I love commentaries. I have a lot of them, but um, they're not my first place that I go because that fosters laziness. How do I study the Bible? These are the central questions that we are going to unpack over the next three weeks. First thing we do, we observe. We observe. What's there? We read the text over and over and over. Next thing we do after we observe is we interpret it. What does the text mean? So first question, what does it say? Second question, what does it mean? And then the third question, what does it mean for me today? How do I apply it to my life? How do I live it out, right? We never want to lose sight of any of these. These are all important. The first one is what we're going to cover tonight, making observations. This is step one. Uh, I need to get my phone so I can keep track of time. So in observation, we're going to do the really simple task of just looking at the text over and over and over, just reading it like crazy. And the reason we do this is because if we move straight from uh, reading the text to applying the text, then we're going to remain tied to our previous understanding of it. And that's not what we want. And we've we've all maybe felt this at different points. Like we read something, we go, man, I've kind of already seen this before. I don't don't see anything new here. Um, You want to avoid that. And so we start by making observations. So we must observe and see the details. Here's the key. At this early stage of just reading the Bible for all it's worth, we have to refrain from interpreting or applying the text. We're merely making observations. So we're just an outsider and we're not yet asking the question, what does this mean? 
nor are we asking the question, how do we apply this to our lives? We're just observing it. So this forces us to really, really, really slow down, which will be hard at first, but it yields quite a bit of of results and rewards. So uh, how do we do this? Reading it over and over again, noticing the details of the text. Keep in mind, like I said, we're not asking what it means yet, but rather what does it say? So here's what to look for in doing observation. Um, Here's an example, repetition. Note any words that repeat in a sentence you are studying. Repetition. So here's an example, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What do we see repeated there? Love and world, right? We keep going. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now what do we see repeated? Desires, more world. What else? I'm asking you guys to slow down and observe as I'm in fast mode. I'm, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> pride of life is like the flesh? Okay. That's true. That's a, uh, you're leaning into interpretation, though. We want to stay in observation mode. Uh, what else do we see sort of repeated? Father. Father, yeah. Anyways, we can't camp here all night, but you get the point. Look for repetition because what repetition can indicate is importance. Second um, Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You guys get the point? <laughs> You see the word comfort repeated over. This is a theme of 2 Corinthians 1, the comfort of God. And so what you do is as you studied this text, you'd write that down. Comfort appears, uh, whatever, five times. And that's all you'd write. Comfort, 5X, right? Um, And we see other things repeated as well. Frank's moving up. That means time to get going. Uh, Look for contrasts. Look for contrasts. This is items that, or, or individuals that are contrasted with each other. So whoever opposes a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. This is a contrast. Guys, I'll admit, what we're doing seems so elementary, so basic, that you're like, why am I wasting my time right now? What am I doing this for? Um, the reason is because we live very fast-paced lives, and we want to sort of read the Bible and get something from it, apply it right away, and run out the door with it, which is sort of well-intentioned, but it just doesn't work that way. Um, We need to slow down sometimes and just notice things like this, make observations. So here's another contrast. Uh, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So contrast. Uh, The New Testament writers, they do the same thing. Here's a very well-known verse, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then here's Ephesians 5.8. We're going to keep moving. First um, John 1.5. I'm sorry, we're going to keep moving. Look for, in addition to contrast, look for comparisons. So the contrast focuses on differences. Comparisons focuses on similarities. Look for these. Um, similarities to each other. So Proverbs 
25, 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. What do we see compared here? The muddied spring and the polluted fountain, right? To the righteous man who just gives way, lets the wicked man do his thing. Yeah. So those are different. We're talking about righteous and a righteous man and a wicked man. And they're making that comparison. Uh, in James 3, so this is a great example. Uh, there's the tongue, and it's compared to three different things. What are they? Notice along the way, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of, of life, and set on fire by hell. What do we see there? Bits? Yeah, the, the, the rudder of ships, horses, and what was the other one? Fire. I don't know why I said three. There's more. Look at you guys. Already, already finding them. It's small things controlling something way bigger to help us understand why we need to control it. But that's an interpretation, so we're not there yet. <laughs> it's an observation. <laughs> you do want to go there instinctively, I know, I know. And there will be times when some of our observations necessarily bleed into interpretations. But, well, yeah, and that's, I mean, the Holy Spirit guides us as we read. And so um, we, have to, uh, we have to kind of slow down and not disconnect from the Holy Spirit, but just make these observations and write them down. Like, do whatever, I'll show you how I did it in Mark when we get near the end. But um, here's another example, Isaiah 40. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we have a comparison here of um, whoever these are, these people that trust the Lord, I'm assuming. They are compared with um, mounting up on wings of eagles. And they shall walk and not be faint. Another thing to look for is lists. Lists occur quite a bit in Scripture. And so, Um, anytime we encounter more than two itemized things, we can identify this as a list and then write that list down and then explore its significance. So is there any order to it? Are they grouped in a certain way? Uh, Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Is that a list? You betcha, yeah. That's a pretty gnarly list. Um, so you'd write this down. Hey, there's a list here. And then you would explore maybe some of the significance of it, which I'll admit bleeds into interpretation, but you're still noting um, observations you've made along the way. This is one of my favorite verses, Second Peter 1, 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I think there's an importance to this. I think love is a pretty significant theme throughout the New Testament, and I don't think it's accidental that it's last, but I'm doing interpretation, so let's keep going. Uh, Cause and effect. Look for cause and effect. This is the relationship between one event, the cause, 
And a second event, the effect, where the second event is understood as a consequence of the first. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's the cause there? God loving the world. What's the effect? He gave his son. Yes, eternal life's the next one, right? Or it's also connected to the, the, the next cause that belief in him is a cause leading to eternal life, right? Yeah, great. So you'd write that down. There seems to be a cause and effect here. And you'd write, cause, God loves the world. Effect, gave his son. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Colossians 3, 1. We've got to keep moving, sorry. Figures of speech. We see this all over the Bible. We saw this in Mark 1 on Sunday, right? Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. This was a figure of speech. It's images in which words are used in a sense other than the normal literal sense. And so you ask yourself, what image is the author trying to convey with this figure of speech? Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's a figure of speech, right? We would just note that. This is a figure of speech. You'd maybe underline it or circle it, whatever you want to do. And for the time, you'd want to refrain from going, um, then that means that God's word guides me. I do believe God's word guides us, but that's an interpretation. We're not there just yet, right? All right. Uh, Philippians 3.8, we're going to keep going. Oh, here's a great one, though. We've uh, we got to read this one, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead, dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That's a strong figure of speech, right? Jesus levels against the Pharisees. Look for conjunctions. Conjunction, junction. Right. That'll be stuck in your head all night. You're welcome. Um, A conjunction is a part of speech that connects words, sentences, phrases, or clauses. Now you're thinking, am I at a church Bible class or am I taking English? Like, what's going on? You tricked us. Jesus... Yeah, Jesus spoke in words. God spoke to us, revealed himself through words. And some of those words have conjunctions. And they're important. We need to notice these. Um, I'm going to show you why they're important. Uh, Look at the word therefore and ask yourself, what's therefore, therefore? (laughs) I'm serious. This is a really important question in doing biblical interpretation. What's the therefore, therefore? Uh, Here's an example. In Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before. So previously, uh, from Hebrews 12, you had Hebrews chapter 11, and this is what we call the hall of faith. And it's this mention of all of these great heroes of the faith who lived faithfully to God. And so now the writer of Hebrews is saying, in light of those people who lived faithfully in obedience to God, let us, what? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We're encouraged by the faithfulness of others to God. And so it's, he's saying, in light of that, let us, let us run. So note that. That's what the therefore is there for. Here's a big one. And Frank talked about this when we were in Romans last year. In chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
This is the, this is the pivot point of Romans, chapter 12, uh, is, is this verse here, chapter 12, verse 1. Previous to chapter 12, Paul lays out this entire majestic theology of what God accomplished through Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And now, in light of what Jesus accomplished, therefore, we ought to, what? Present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then from there, that pivot point turns to all of these direct applications of how Christians should live their lives. And that's where Romans 12 just unpacked, right? Let love be genuine. Pray without ceasing, right? All these kinds of things. So, therefores are important. They don't seem like it. We just pass right over them. But when we slow down and we make these observations, we go, whoa, conjunctions matter. Um, here's, here's one. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience. In light of the fact that you are God's chosen one, then what? Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is... This is um, this is really good news for us because it, this verse and the rest of the New Testament drives Christians to act out of response of what God has done. Not just, hey, do this because it's the right thing to do. I grew up that way. D- just do this because I said so or don't do this because I said not to. Um, instead of out of a love for, now I, I do love my mom and dad. They, they did raise me in some sense this way, but the primary motivation for living with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience is out of the fact that we are God's holy chosen ones, right? This is, this is an important conjunction then. David, can we go back to yeah. Hebrews? Yeah. 12.1. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm going to slow down here and make this point because I think it was, it, it was helpful to me when I finally got this a number of years ago. So there might be two or three people in here that it will be helpful for. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now you're talking about observations not interpretation. Yes. So, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this point to kind of bridge a little gap here. So um, one of the observations you're going to make in this verse is the, the conjunction, therefore. So you realize something is happening. There's a consequence here that's very, very important. Good. You should be paying attention. And uh, one of the reasons you should be paying attention is because you're referring back to this great cloud of witnesses. Now... You have a point of interpretation at this point because most of us see that cloud of witnesses and we think in terms of people witnessing us. So the way we read that, again, without thinking through, how, without slowing down and thinking through how we're reading it, some of us are going to read that as though, well, there must be people watching me. They're witnessing me. A lot of people have interpreted it this way. Oh, I never knew that. Yes. They must be watching me. Therefore, Hmm. I need to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely so that I run the race with endurance so that I can demonstrate to them that I'm a good Christian. That's that's interesting. So the observation can sometimes, if you don't slow down and think about it, can, you know, it's ambiguous. Right. And ambig- the, the definition of ambiguity is more than one potential interpretation or meaning. And so I wanted to point this out because I know we're not doing interpretations yet, but how you make the observation and the assumptions you make about the observation can lead you to a, an interpretation that might be wrong. The witnesses that the author here is talking about 
are the witnesses that, that we have witnessed, the, the people that we have witnessed. Their testimony is telling us that because they did it, we can also do it. Right. So it's a different interpretation, but it's a better and, and more accurate interpretation. That's really good and helpful. Thank you, Frank. Um, so in kind of in summary, when you see that therefore in Hebrews 12, Frank is saying you have to go back, sure you go back. and look, what is that referring back to? Because it's sequential in its nature of, as a word. Right, and we're going to talk about context next week, yeah, in, with, with uh, bigger picture stuff. Um, verbs, look at verbs. This is another boring part of English, but they're important. These are words that communicate an action to a sentence. No surprise here. No, we're not doing sentence diagramming. <laughs> You're welcome. We did sentence diagramming a couple weeks ago in class, and my students hated it. Um, and you ask yourself, is it a past, present, or future tense verb? So I went, I go, I will go. Um, does it present a progressive idea? So does it have a continued action? I was going, I am going, I will be going. Um, ask yourself this, is it an imperative? Go, right? Go. Imperatives have some sort of emphatic weight to them, maybe that others don't. That would, that would affect, yeah, it's a commanding type word. So it would affect maybe the way you understand it. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So what verb do we see here? Be, right? Yeah, be kind. And then forgiving one another, this is a, a continuous action. And then um, we have, as God in Christ forgave you. So now, now I'm making observations. I'm not only seeing verbs, but I'm seeing comparisons, right? God in Christ forgiving us, us forgiving others. So I'm writing this down, just making these observations, moving along. Uh, look for verbs that are either passive or active. Active verbs are those in which the subject is doing the action. So Bill hit the ball. Pa- <laughs> just an example. <laughs> passive verbs are those verbs where the, the subject is acted upon. Bill was hit by the ball. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> um, this distinction is particularly important in Paul's letters because it often delineates between what we do and what God has done for us. Passive verbs underscore what God has done for us. So here's an example in Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's passive, right? It's something that happened to you. Um, seek, this is an active verb, you seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So you'd write that down. Two verbs here. One seems to be passive, one seems to be active. Just shape the way we understand the text. Pronouns, more boring English stuff. Any word that takes the place of a noun, note all of them and be sure to identify the antecedent, to whom or to what the pronoun refers. This might seem not that important, but let me give you an example, a larger section of scripture of where I think you'll see the value and importance of this. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love this section of scripture, um, but there are some people who would say the we and us pronouns here aren't referring to Christians at large. 
they're referring to Paul and his apostolic team of ministers. What happens if that's the interpretation? I don't think that's the right interpretation, but that's a, that's a, a legitimate argument on the part of some New Testament scholars. It changes the meaning of this passage. We don't have that same um, really, really encouraging verse in t- the very end, 121, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a great verse about Jesus' blood and atonement uh, taking our place for our sin. If this is about Paul and his apostolic team, it changes the meaning of it. So you want to note the pronouns and then try to, re- try to find the antecedent to which it refers. The way you would do that, and we, I can't do it here because I didn't have room on the PowerPoint, you would zoom out a little bit and you'd look at the surrounding context, okay? All right, so this is, we're going to wrap up and then we'll have some questions. Look at that. I still got eight minutes to spare. Um, the, this is the first step is just making observations. It's tackling the biblical text in such a way that you make as many detailed observations as possible. You must dig deep. And this starts by reading the text looking at the text over and over and over and observing the details. So to give you an example of this, I included um, a, a, not screenshot, but I scanned it. So I prepared to preach on Mark 1. Most of you were here on Sunday. Um, I, I spent time just observing the text, reading it over and over and over. And what I did is I copied and pasted the verses. So it was Mark 1, 16 through 20. I copied and pasted those verses into a Microsoft Word file double-spaced it so I had room to handwrite and then printed it out and then read that over and over and got a pen and just marked it up as I went. And so can you all see that or is that too small? Okay. So um, I wish, does this have a laser pointer? No, No, darn it. (laughs) I should have one. That would be cool. Um, So here's what I did. The first thing I noticed, I made an observation. This is a location, the Sea of Galilee. So I just marked that. Um, he saw, Jesus saw two brothers, and I just, one, two, Simon and Andrew. And then I noticed this action occurring, this casting of a net into the sea. And then as I kept reading, I, I noticed net was present a number of times. You had, you know, two or, two or th- you had three of them total. Um, for they were fishermen, second line at the end there. I just, I underlined fishermen because later I saw fishers of men in verse 17, and I thought, Hmm, this is interesting. I want to contrast these two. Then Jesus said to them, and I bracketed that off because I thought, this is important. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the one whom, in whom I place my trust, speaking. So this, I'm going to put little stars there because that seems important. And then he says this, follow me. So I put a box around follow, and I put a box around followed later, and at the end, they followed him. And then I noticed the relational aspect of it, me. So I drew little uh, scribbly underlines underneath me and I, and, and they followed him, you see on the left there. So that's bleeding over into interpretation, but uh, I'm still making this observation, right? This is Jesus calling people to follow him, okay? Then um, I noticed immediately was repeated, so I underlined it twice, once in 18, once in verse 19, uh, they left their nets. I, I was starting to run out of uh, things to observe with. I didn't want it to all look the same. So I used this dash underlining thing. I circled nets again. I, I saw followed, so I boxed that off. Him, here's again that relational aspect of it. 
Going on a little farther, he saw James and John, two more brothers. So I just numbered them, numbered them, three and four. So one, two, three, four. Nothing, nothing significant here, just making observations. Um, they were in their boat. I did a weird underline there because uh, that, that's repeated a little bit later, in the boat. And then I noticed this action again, mending the nets. Whereas before, Simon and Andrew were casting a net into the sea. So observation, these guys weren't just doing nothing. They were in the middle of something. They were doing an action and Jesus shows up and says, follow me. Is that significant? I think so, yeah. The answer to that is an interpretive question and I got to that later. Uh, Immediately, again, we see that word. He called them. Similar as before, he said to them, right? And now what? They left their father. That's the same as the previous two brothers. They left their nets, right? In the boat and what? Followed him. Now, I'm not gonna say that I exhausted the passage. There's stuff there that I probably didn't observe. But I spent about 20, 25 minutes just reading it over and over and making these notes as I went. And then what I did is I uh, typed those out. So I typed out location, Sea of Galilee, two brothers, three uh, three and four brothers. Um, Follow appears three times. Nets appears three times, right? Jesus called two different times. And what this does is it just helped me to soak in the text itself so that I would have a firmer grasp of it as I tried to interpret it and then proclaim it. You guys see this? Does this help? Is this helpful? Cool. All right, so here's your, here's your assignment, all right? I know that, that, I, that sorry, the fluke um, te- the exam slide, that doesn't apply, but you do have an assignment for next week. Read through Philippians and just make observations. This is not hard. Philippians is four chapters. It's a great book. It's full of, it's um, a postcard. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it kind of is a functionally a postcard. And what we're going to do is we're going to start applying some of these rules of interpretation that we learn next week to Philippians. I don't know how much we'll do Philippians next week, but Frank's going to walk us through Philippians the last night. I'm, I'm going to do the background of Philippians next week. Oh, it that's would perfect. Be good if they read it though before yeah. that, and then the final week I'm going to read through it. Read through it. So start familiarizing yourself with Philippians. Um, you don't have to print it out and do circles and underlines, but if you want to, you can, and that m- it might prove helpful. So um, questions before we wrap up? I we have just a- one quick point. Yeah. So he had four verses up there, yeah. and he spent 25 minutes on yeah. it. Okay, some of you are like, that's insanity. I could have re- I- I read five chapters of Mark in 25 minutes. What's going on here? And, and, and I have an answer f- for you on that. Uh, I, would, I would rather you knew two verses so well that it transformed your life hmm. than for you to know two books well enough to go on Jeopardy and maybe win a couple of hundred dollars. There's a big difference there. So we said that last week. I'm saying it again this week. I'll say it again the last two weeks. Uh, we want you to read formationally and not informationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain parts of Scripture that I, I, I've been a Christian for almost 30 years and there are just some parts of Scripture that I could point to and say, I, I've just made it my life to know these parts of Scripture better than other parts of Scripture. The book of Philippians is one of them, specifically, specifically Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 11, uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then a passage that, that David had up there earlier today, 2 Corinthians five sixteen through 21. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, these are key passages it's better that you know that than be able to say, oh, I, 
you know, reading through the Bible in a year is a really great thing, and I wouldn't discourage you from doing that at all. But if, if you could know 2 Corinthians chapter 5 really well, that, that might be even more important, something like that. Yeah, and that's, to, to my point, sort of at the outset was, we don't want to turn this into an academic exercise. It may have felt like that when we're talking about verbs and pronouns and different things, um, or the history of the Bible and how it was composed. Um, it's not just that. It's God's word and it speaks to us. It's not just informational, right, Frank? It's for the purpose of forming us. It's formational. And so um, that's our goal is for, for you guys to, to see the value of that. Um, next week, we'll pick up with more interpretive tools. We'll look at historical context, literary context, and then bigger picture theological context. Um, and then Frank will, will do some of that with uh, Philippians. So um, go home, feel like, okay, I have some tools to just start observing. Very basic, very simple. Any of us can do this. This isn't like, a, oh, I have to have a special Bible commentary for it. Any of us can do it. And so I would encourage you to do it, write it down, and, and then uh, start asking God to speak to you through some of those observations. So, I'm going to do background on Philippians and Amos next week. Background. Background on Philippians and so, Amos. And it's good. Just maybe 15 minutes on each book, but demonstrate how you can have such a much greater appreciation for both of those books. Some of you hopefully are thinking, Amos, that's something from the Old Testament. I never read the Old Testament. And just by giving you the 15 minutes of background on that and how to find it in your own Bible, we think that'll really improve things and help you a lot. We great. Think. Let's pray and then we'll go. It's 8 o'clock, so I want to be mindful of you guys' time. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word. I pray that... Um, you would be forming us continually through it and um, that we would refrain from just feeling like we need to inform ourselves, but that we want to be um, transformed by it. And so we pray that you would bless our efforts and that through it, we would become um, more loving, more Christ-like followers of you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.